0: I think that we have an opportunity this weekend to do some studies together, and more particularly to reflect on how we do studies. You know, the concept of the School of the Prophets isn't just to study together, but to look at how we study together, to to learn from one another, to share experiences of how many years we've been in the truth. I was baptized at 16, and that's 51 years ago. Um, and to learn from the mistakes, as well as perhaps some of the the more positive side, and what I was going to do today is what i 've done in the California and the Seattle Bible School of the Prophets is to share approaches you 'll hear different brethren teaching in different ways, and you make your mind up whether you like different approaches that 's entirely. Up to you how you decide to use what you've learnt. This isn't about how to give talks. It's about approaches to Bible study. And that's, there are three, three areas I, I would like to cover with you. Uh, one of them is, uh, and they're all tools, three tools or three approaches, right? The first one is verbal inspiration as a tool of Bible study. You may not think of verbal inspiration in that way, but I'm going to suggest to you that it is a tool of Bible study and that it sets a particular type of study, a particular course of study. It, it uh, insists on, on particular methods of Bible study that arise out of that. And it challenges other approaches to Bible study, which uh, I'm going to challenge you with uh, later on. The second approach is to look at the structure of Scripture and you might say, what does he mean by the structure? God willing, i explain that tomorrow. And for me, this is relatively new. So over the last six years or so, I have picked up on the importance of structure. Now, you may have known this for decades, but I have come new to this. Some of you know what i am be talking about. Uh, but uh, other of you, others of you may hear it for the first time. And it would be really important tomorrow that we, we, we test out these concepts, you know, you're not going to, oh, Stephen says this, right, that that we test out this, because if, if what I'm saying is true, if there really are these structures there, they're not a certain brother's style of speaking, they're there, they're there to be understood, they're there to be discovered by us all, they're there to be followed, because they will be scripture's own way of teaching us how to understand scripture, you know, we say, Quite rightly, that's, uh, the way to understand scripture is to compare scripture with scripture. That's a Christadelphianism, isn't it? Compare scripture with scripture. Well, What do we mean? And I think one of the things we should mean is that within a passage of scripture, we're comparing lines with lines. Right? That's the way scripture is written. And we can, we can look at the scriptural text comparing lines with lines because they interpret one another. So it's not left to us to guess what the passage is about. There are so signposts within the passage that they're telling us what it's about. I was talking to, uh, to Shannon this morning, and sometimes we sort of want to make the Bible into something it's not. We sort of uh, almost think that, you know, the Bible's not very well written. It's a bit repetitive, and it leaves things out. If we could sort it out for itself we could get the story straight. We'd we'd be able to tell the story in an easier way. And think, well, hang on a minute. Let's go back and rethink that. (laughs) The scriptures are presented to us in a certain way for a certain purpose. What's that purpose? How is it teaching us to understand it? It's not actually telling the story of the life of Abraham. It's drawing out certain aspects that Abraham is illustrating and promises that God made to Abram to direct us in a certain way to anticipate the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Most of Abram's life, we don't know what he did. We we know he wandered, but 175 years, there's a very small amount of information about his life. So what has been put there is highly selected by the Holy Spirit to teach us certain ways to think about the life of Abraham. And rather than saying... Let's try and find out what Abram's life was about by putting together these passages. Why don't we look at what we're given and say, this is what we've been given. It's got shape. It's got structure. It's got organization of information. It's got a theme. It's got the development of thought. It's not necessarily a linear development. It, It turns as it goes. That's what we're trying to get our heads around or into our heads. Okay, so the, then the third one is uh, what we do when we compare one passage with another. So we, we, we compare scripture with scripture in different parts of the Bible. And we do that because we think that one part of scripture is telling us to go to another part of scripture. So what we call quotations, allusions, echoes, or simply cross-references. I uh, want to think about what's going on there when we, when we do that. I think that's entirely sound. But in all, those, in all those approaches, there's scope for us getting it wrong by using our own imagination and teaching the Bible what it means <laughs> rather than listening to what it's saying. So that's what I've been doing. And it may sound theoretical and academic. I hope it'll end up not so. The other thing is to say that I, let me start out by telling you how I started Bible study and the mistakes I made. So the first thing, when I was baptized, I was given a study Bible, and well, I did my daily Bible reading from so a study Bible. Mistake, mistake. Because the study Bible already had notes in it, and therefore the temptation is when you read a passage is to read the study notes. Right. Now, a study Bible may be useful at times. If you've got the ESV study Bible, some beautiful illustrations drawn by Brother Lane Rittmeyer. I have it, I have a copy, uh, and it's, it's beautiful for that purpose. What the publishers think about a passage, that's not really my concern. Uh, what does the scripture teach is my concern. The danger of these uh, used to be Ellicott's annotated Bible when I was young that Brethren had. They tended to spout out what Ellicott thought about a passage. Not a good idea. Second mistake. I was, I was suggesting that I should read Preaching the Word by Brother A.D. Norris, a very good book full of exhortation about the young speaker's pitfalls, you know, about warnings against pride, about you know, uh, trying to make a good impression it had things like read what you've just written, find the bit you're most proud of, and cross it out <laughs> <laughs> and rewrite it. <laughs> yeah? You understand that point, right? He said, oh, well, this is a good bit, you know. This is my. Pu-. He calls them purple patches, passages. He said, find your purple passages, cross them out and rewrite them. <laughs> They're a little less. But at the back was a, a recommended reading list. And I made the mistake of reading it uh, selectively. I didn't read the Christadelphian works. I did read the non-Christadelphian works. So I spent a year or two reading non-Christadelphian literature when I would have been better off reading the pioneer works. And it took me a while to realize that. So that was a mistake. The good thing is a, a brother said to me, you need to buy Strong's Concordance. That's what you need to do, Right. And I went down to the bookshop, and there was one battered copy of Strong's left on the shelf, and I bought it, and that was the best thing. Uh, And it used to be said, you know, there were three concordances crudens, youngs, and strongs. So it was crudens for crude ones, youngs for young ones, strongs for strong ones. Anyway, Strong's was useful, so you could get into the original words and follow the original words. But what it couldn't do was what I always wanted, which was to list all the passages in the Bible where one Hebrew word was used. Rather than, you you know what Strong's is like. You find the English word. You find the number, you go to the lexicon, you find the number, you find how many different English words are used, and you go back to each of those English words to find out where that number appears, and uh, it's difficult. So, if only I could get a list of all the verses, howsoever they are translated. It wasn't I went to Nathan's house and went to his dad's study that he showed me Englishman's concordance, (laughs) and I thought... I never even knew there was an Englishman's concordance uh, in which all the verses where a particular original word was used, however they were translated, are listed. Now if you've got the Bible on computer, you have that immediately. So when you go into your online Bible and you you click on, you know, search for and you, you click on a Strong's number and it lists that's Englishman's Concordance, that's what it is. And the thing about Englishman's concordance is that it gives you the meaning of a word defined by how it's used. Forget about what strong says the word means, look up how it's used. And that is called the semantic value of the word. And the semantic value of the word is how a word word's is defi- is meaning is defined. Right? So when Brethren said go to Strong's, they were absolutely right, not because Strong's is for strongmen, but that the meaning of a word is not defined by its etymology. It's not defined by where that word comes from, you know, from the Latin or the Greek or whatever. And, and, and As it's come down through the centuries, the tendency is to say, okay, what does this word mean? Oh, well, it comes from this word. It comes from that word, which comes from that word. And that's what a word means. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. The word means... Uh, the meaning is derived from how it is used. So look up those passages and say, okay, where this word occurs, the context tells me this is what the word's about. So that approach to Bible study, which is a, a particularly Christadelphian approach, is really very sound. When I went to university, I met a brother who was expert in linguistics. And he was pointing out that this Definition of the meaning of a word by its use is absolutely academically sound. Right? It's not just this is the way we do it, but actually it's the right way to do it. So that that, that was uh, perhaps I got back onto the right approach. So now what I want to do is to look at inspiration and uh, ask you to think about this in more detail and particularly to think about the implications of Verbal inspiration for Bible study. That's the foundation clause of our statement of faith. You'll all recognize it, I'm sure. Uh, and that is what we mean by verbal inspiration. That, that the book currently under the Bible, right, the same were wholly given by inspiration of God in the writers. Verbal inspiration, we mean not just that God inspired the prophets' thoughts, but the words that the prophets use. So we don't, our foundation clause is not that Isaiah was given visions and Isaiah explains them in his own words. Or Isaiah captures them in his own way of speaking. And Jeremiah was given thoughts and Jeremiah explained them in his own words. We don't believe that, do we? We believe that the words that Jeremiah wrote and the words that Isaiah wrote were of God. Yeah? Hang on to that because uh, it gets a bit trickier. Brother Thomas wrote in 1858 in the Herald of the Kingdom of the Age to Come that the denial of verbal inspiration may facilitate the rationalist in evading all that he is not inclined to believe, and may free him from certain trammels, which are felt to be irksome and oppressive, but founded as it is on the assumption of inaccuracy in word and opinion, it can only lead to an utter denial of the whole book itself. So from the very outset, Brother Thomas understood that the denial of verbal inspiration could only lead to the denial of the whole book itself. Just say, oh no, I believe the Bible's wholly inspired that the ideas that the prophets were given were of God is not enough. It's verbal inspiration which is going to make all the difference. It's because of verbal inspiration we can do those word studies. Who would think of linking the words of um, a Hebrew prophet in Jerusalem 700 years BC with the words of a Greek Gentile in 60 AD. Who would think of doing that? And assume that you could go from one to the other without a problem. Without having to unravel the cultural milieu of the writers. We do that, don't we? We turn up Isaiah and say, oh, Luke's referring to Isaiah. Right? And we do that without saying, oh, that's not possible, without an awful lot of in-between. We do it because we understand that the author is God. That the words Luke wrote are the words God wanted him to write. The words Isaiah wrote are the words Isaiah wanted to write. There's a greater mind behind those words that when, when one passage refers to another, it's simply that God is referring us to his word earlier spoken. If we don't believe in verbal inspiration, there's no basis for us to do that. Can I move on? So this is why we believe that. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Do you want to turn that up? 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. It's very, very well known. You can recite it, no doubt. But let's just notice the accuracy of what it's saying. Context is clear that Timothy has been reminded of how he'd learned the the truth from his mother and grandmother and that he had been taught the holy scriptures from a child, that those scriptures are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. The scriptures, and the word scriptures refers to the writing. Now Notice what's happening. Two concepts are brought together. All scripture, all writing, is God-breathed. Given by inspiration of God is one Greek word. and neustos, I just separated out there to see that the two parts, theo is God, neustos is breath or spirit. All scripture is God-breathed. God-breathed, we say words. When we say words, we breathe out. Scripture is God-breathed. They're God's words. But a word is a word spoken. But what it's saying, all the writing is God's spoken word. So it's making, it's not just saying all scripture comes from God's spoken word, which Isaiah and Jeremiah understood in their own particular way and recorded in their own peculiar style. It's not saying that at all. It's saying something fundamentally different. It's saying that what is written is God's word breathed out. There's no gap. There's nothing... To insert between God's speaking and the writing of scripture. Right? Now that that is, I, I think that's really important. That what we're reading is God's words to say. Or you're reading Isaiah's concept of God. Or you're reading Matthew's concept of Jesus. Or John's concept of Jesus. Right? What we're saying is we're reading God's words. That's what the writing is. It's God's words written down. I stress that because it's a common view in the brotherhood and may even be the majority view in the brotherhood, but I don't agree with it, that the style of the writer is a mediating factor in the transmission of God's word to the pages of Scripture. That you will read Matthew style. Mark style. Luke style. John style. Paul style. Peter style. In scripture. Yet it's not saying that. Now, of course this is talking about Old Testament scripture. But I don't think it's giving us any place for Isaiah's style. If by that you mean. Isaiah's personality. Being a mediating influence. In how God's word. Comes to be recorded as scripture. Or that Jeremiah's predilections, Jeremiah's choice of events, is reflected in what's in the book of Jeremiah. See where I'm going? What it's saying is that all scripture, all the writing, is God's word breathed out. But that doesn't mean to say there aren't things in the Bible which are not, uh, it doesn't mean to say that there aren't things in the Bible which are men's words. And we have to make a distinction between the record of men's words and men's words. Or, to put it this way, the serpent's lie is in the Bible. The Bible contains a lie. But the scripture can only speak truth. It's a true record of the serpent's lie. The book of Job contains much wrong thinking. Because the book of Job contains a true account of the wrong thinking of Job's friends. We know they're wrong because they're rebuked for not speaking that which is right concerning God. See the distinction there? I think it's just a good illustration. I've done a study on Ezra and Nehemiah recently, uh, recent times, and uh, it turns out that about 80%, 80% of the book of Ezra is official documents from the court of the king of Persia. They may not easily read like that, but when you look at it carefully, that's what they are. They are copies of letters and edicts to and from the king. So, most of... Ezra is not inspired words of God in that sense that it's recording those official documents. You may say, oh, but those official documents were providentially written, and I don't deny that at all. But what is inspired is the choice to put them in and the accuracy of putting them in. And then you have to ask yourself, so why would, why would the Almighty cause Ezra to write down official documents in a scroll which would become scripture? Right, so that's the question. The question isn't whether, you know, Ezra 4 verse 7 to 16 is, is truly God's word. It, it is the scroll is God's word. But God has caused Ezra. God has told Ezra in some way. Put that in there accurately. Okay. This is what uh, one writer says. A writer who specialized in the Ezra and Nehemiah, and this is what she says in the Oxford Encyclopedia of Books of the Bible. She says Ezra and Nehemiah advocates the primacy of the written word, showing the power of documents to generate events and shape history. This writer, I don't think, is an active uh, believer. I don't know. She's an academic. She's not writing as a, as a religious person. She's writing as a, a student of ancient literature. And she says that Ezra Nehemiah is unique in antiquity, which is interesting, isn't it? That that what God has caused Ezra to do was not known about. It, it wasn't the concept that was picked up from the culture around God says to Ezra include these documents and I think she's probably right why to show the power of documents to generate events and shape history this is how God works he works through the, the kingdoms of men through their policies and their strategies to bring about his purpose Ezra put that in this scroll so forever after people may realize how I work and how I shape history and realize the power of the written word. Ezra is credited by Judaism. But having compiled the canon of the Old Testament. Ezra shows us the power of the written word. The power of documents. To shape history. And the Bible has shaped history. It's, it's an interesting point. But 85% of the book is an amalgamation of documents. So what are we saying? What we're saying is this. Distinguish between the event and the record of the event. But the Bible concern writes events, uh, describes events, but it's the record of the event that the Bible ha- is inspired. Okay, that's the difference. So when we read in Scripture, uh, we we read it with intelligence. Don't we we don't read it like you know the Pilgrim Fathers read the Old Testament and applied it to America right or, or before then to britain uh, you know they 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 thought the blessings that would come on israel nationally would come upon them nationally they didn't they did, they took things out of context they didn't ask what the message of that passage was they took bits of it and said that's us we can we can we can claim that first Corinthians chapter 10 verse 11 now all these things happened Unto them, that's the event. They are written for our admonition. Notice that, right? They're written for our admonition. They happen to them. They're written for us. So the writing isn't simply, as sometimes we might assume, a record of the events of the time, written at the time for the time. Well, we can derive some benefit from it, not at all. What happened to them happened in much more detail than we're given. Much more detail. I mean, there's 38 years in the wilderness we're not told about. 38 years. We know the names of the places they went to, but we don't know what happened there. If you ask for the Lane Rittmeyer where they happened, he says, nobody knows where these places are. You can't, you can't plot them on the map. The 38 years is gone. Like a tale that is told and forgotten about. But what is written is written for us. So that's what we have to realize when we read these things. We have to ask ourselves, why is, the, why is the Lord revealing these things in this way to us to be understood? It's not about trying to recreate simply those events in the past using our imagination. It is about looking at what we've been given and analyzing, thinking about what we've been given and hearing what the message is. So, yes, error may be included, but only in the sense of the inclusion of a record of error. Yeah? So, this is my suggestion. The implications of verbal inspiration for Bible study. First of all, Bible study, uh, Bible study is discovery, not invention. Bible study is a treasure hunt. Bible study is digging for gold. Right? Right? It is or or panning for gold, right? We went panning for gold in California for an hour or two, right? Uh, It's not about inventing messages and lessons and, and thoughts. It's about discovering what's there, hearing what's there, seeing what's there. That's why we dig. That's why we use the concordance. We're trying to find out what's there. It's inspiration of words, not just ideas, Consequently, every word matters. No word is superfluous. I mean, there's so few words in Scripture, really, given the incidents that they're recording. You have to say that that's been chosen and put in that way for a particular purpose. What is the purpose? We we don't say, oh, yes, it just means, you know, nothing just means anything. (laughs) We may understand why, but let's not dismiss it as containing valuable lessons. And ultimately, the Bible is literature. It is a selection, carefully selected, set of events and narratives and dialogue and so on that has shape and structure, which is as much part of the inspired word as are You know, the thoughts in the words themselves. So if we find there are patterns of thought in scripture, those patterns are a revelation of the mind of God. They're not to be treated as, oh, that's interesting. You know, or that's small print or, oh, yeah, that's curious. We still say, hang on, this is the word of God. If it's really there, it's there for a purpose. We need to find out what, what it's there for. Consequently, I would press this point that the meaning of scripture is what God in- intended, not what readers can make of it. Nowadays, in a postmodern world, people are taught in universities and colleges to, to read literature where the reader brings meaning to the passage. You Come across that concept? That is the, uh, the reader-writer interaction out of which meaning comes. So, you're a different reader from person sitting next to you you get different meaning from this passage because you're bringing your own mind to it and the meaning is created out of your interaction with the literature i don't think we could say that of course different people will pick up different points but surely what we're trying to find out is always what in god intended not what we make of it so we would avoid saying you know i like the point i like best about this chapter is which we are inclined to say, aren't we? I just say Well, what I take from this psalm is right. Now, I'm not going to make a man an offender for a word, but what I think we really ought to be saying is, what is the Lord teaching us here? Now, there may be in that teaching a point that is particularly pertinent to my situation. That's a different question. That's a different matter. What is this, What is the Lord teaching us? What does He intend us to take? And these new meanings are not added retrospectively. If you read New Testament writers, they will say that the Apostle Paul gives new meaning to the prophecy of Isaiah. In other words, what they're saying is Isaiah never intended the passages Isaiah wrote to be interpreted in this way, but the Apostle Paul has come along with a new way of thinking, and he's reinterpreted Isaiah and given a new meaning. We couldn't possibly... uh, but mean that could we what we do mean is that scripture interprets scripture because it's always uh, the verbal word of God that the meaning is defined by its use it's not limited by culture, audience or penman. as the meaning of Isaiah is not limited by the fact that Isaiah lived 700 years BC in Jerusalem uh, you know his conception isn't what limits how to interpret Isaiah. You, you wouldn't say, look, these prophecies couldn't possibly be speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ because Isaiah wouldn't have known that. Isaiah was a Jew living amongst Jews and he's just speaking about Israel. That's who he's talking about. That's what all he would have understood. That's all the people at the time would have understood. He can't possibly be reading about, writing about Messiah. The New Testament applies this to Messiah. They, they interpret it in that way. Well, we wouldn't say that because we say, no, whether Isaiah understood it or not is immaterial. He was writing by the power of the Holy Spirit upon him. Right? Yes, he was speaking about Messiah. How do you know? Well, the New Testament tells us he was. Israel was supposed to hear that the things of Isaiah were, were about the one to come. Right? That's what we would believe, surely. So let me just put this. Is there any, uh, anybody wants to ask any questions and make any points on what I've said there. Is that, is that pretty clear? When we go to the New Testament we do find the New Testament opens up our understanding of Old Testament passages, but that's because they claim that that's what the Old Testament passage was about. You know, that there was a concentration of meaning in that passage in Isaiah, and this is how it unfolds in the Lord Jesus. That's a different thing from saying Isaiah thought one thing the Apostle Paul used it in a different way. Well, I think that's, that's exactly where we wanted to get to. So I'm glad you've raised that because in saying it the way you've said it, I hope it sort of challenged you to think, ah, oh, but Matthew is different from Mark. Why? All right. How much is that due to Matthew being different from Mark as people? And how much is that because God has a different purpose with Matthew as opposed to Mark? how much of Matthew is in the book of Matthew, so on. Clearly, there's a lot of the Apostle Paul in his epistles. I mean, they're written as letters from the Apostle Paul. How can I say it's not the Apostle Paul? I'm not saying that, but we'll have to think our way through that. So that's what I'd like us to do, and that's exactly what I'd like us to do. What I want to do now is a bit of an exercise here because uh, I want you to to have a look yourselves at certain scriptures, just to show the point. Now, every word of God is pure. So that's why we talk about verbal inspiration. Every word of God is pure. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Even the Lord Jesus Christ, the prophet like unto Moses, uh, of him it was said that God will put his words in his mouth. Even the Lord Jesus Christ spoke the words that God put in his mouth. So, this is the Exodus, if you will. Uh, we break into the presentation for, for five minutes, if that's possible. And I'll ask you to look at the most quoted New Testament in the New Testament verse. Right? And I would uh, rather take a short version. Have a look at these passages and tell me which words are emphasized of that verse. Each of those passages refers us to that same verse, Psalm 110, verse 1. Yahweh said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. So, turn them up now and, and just, you know, identify what has been emphasized from that quotation. I'll tell you the first one because, well, let's just do the first one out loud. Matthew 22 verse 44. Remember, this is the Lord, they're lining up to ask Jesus questions. And at the end of this challenge, he asks them a question. He says, how, whose son is Messiah? Right? And they say, well, he's David's son. And then Jesus says to them, how then does David call him Lord? Saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand till I make the enemies. Of the Lord. So, the Lord Jesus Christ quotes this verse and he says, Do you know what it says? It says, My Lord. Yahweh said unto my Lord, David is speaking, and David calls Messiah Lord. How is he then his son? Answer only one answer. That David's son was greater than David because he was God's son. So the argument that silenced all further discussion forever after was this little phrase, my Lord, in that quotation. Do you get that point? Jesus uh, says to them, and I was, how did David, what, what terms did David address his son, Messiah? Oh, he called him my Lord. How is he his Lord if he's his son? And they couldn't answer. I think they knew where it was going. They knew that David was indicating in that psalm that Christ was greater than David and therefore had to have a higher origin than David. Though Christ would be born of Mary... He would have God as his father. That's the only explanation. So in other words, Jesus left them in silence, pondering whether or not he was the son of God. And they crucified him because he said he was. And it's that verse, that phrase, my Lord. Now, have a look at the other passages and see if you can agree with us, with me, (laughs) between yourselves of what is being emphasized In those references. So the context is. The the offerings that were made under the law. Were never ending. Was there anywhere to sit down. In the tabernacle for the priest. Was there anywhere to sit down in the temple. There was nowhere to sit down. There was no easy chair. There was no stool. A priest never sat down. And this is verse 11. Every priest standeth. Daily. Ministering and offering, oftentimes, the same sacrifices. In other words, there was never-ending sacrifice. You couldn't sit down, you never. The line was going to the horizon. Right? Offering after offering, after offering, after offering. It was, the work was never done. It's just reminding us of the perpetual presence of sin. Sin was never taken away. It was being reminded of, every sacrifice reminds us that the wages of sin is death, and none of them, because their animal sacrifices, could take away sin. They were the basis for forgiveness. And the word is, in verse 11, every priest standeth. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down. You see, the, you see, if you look at Hebrews 10, just, you know, mark it in put a ring around standeth and sat and link them together in some way. You know that It's a contrast between the priest of the Mosaic age. He stands, but this man sat down. That the Lord Jesus Christ sat down. That word there, when he always said to my Lord, sit. He signaled the Melchizedek priesthood and the end of sin for all time. He signaled the once for all sacrifice. He sat down. He didn't need to offer again. There's no more offering for sin. This one's sufficient forever. It's an amazing thing. If we sin again after we're baptized, it's the same sacrifice. It's the basis for our forgiveness. The one sacrifice for everybody who's ever lived for all time. And that little three-letter word, sit, is what captures that. It's amazing. If you and I had put such meaning onto a word in Scripture, we would rightly be accused of, hey, hang on a minute, You're putting far too much emphasis on one word. (laughs) But we've got New Testament authority for saying that those high priests stood, but this one sat down. Point being, my Lord said and sit are being emphasized in particular in that statement. The statement is always true. Every word and phrase in it is always true. But when it's used in one place, it's to stress, my Lord. When it's used in another place, it's to stress, God said it to Christ, but he hasn't said it to angels. When it's used in a third place, it is, and he said, sit, signaling such a marvelous truth. So what about Hebrews 8, verse 1, 12, verse 2 and 3? There are other passages like that. Take take Hebrews 8, verse 1, for example. It's clearly a reference to Psalm 110, verse 1, but it expands it, doesn't it? Just Hebrews 8 verse 1 expand. It, it's it's a uh, an elaboration and uh, a development of that word there. My sit thou at my right hand. Look at look at Hebrews now of the things which we have spoken. This is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set. On the right hand of, well, Psalm 110, verse 1 says, my right hand. Ah, don't you realize where that is? The right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. That's where the Lord Jesus Christ, where's God's right hand? My, the throne of the majesty in the heavens. What a remarkable thing. This is, this is the elevated status of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's, he's drawing upon what does it mean to be at God's right hand? This is none other than the throne of the majesty in the heavens. That's where the Lord Jesus Christ is. You see how that... We say, yes, he's was, he was sitting at the right hand of God, as if somehow that was, you know, a place... I don't know where. No, this is the majesty of the heavens, the creator of heaven and earth. That is where the Lord Jesus Christ is. That's how great this is. That's how momentous this is. So this, this is talking about a uniqueness. Not about an angel, but about Jesus, who was both son of David and son of God. The Melchizedek priest who had ascended to the very dwelling place of God himself. That's what that verse is saying. Go back to Hebrews chapter 10. I think uh, just mentioned that a bit earlier. What about verse 13? What word is emphasized now in verse 13? And it gives the element of time in verse 13, doesn't it? So verse 12 says, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting, expecting. There's a time element, an anticipation. Expecting what? Until his enemies be made his footstool. So I would suggest that that word until is being underlined there. Right? The Lord Jesus Christ is going to return and we, there's an expectation. One day his enemy is going to be made his footstool. Uh, but not yet. So it's until. We're in that until period. We are waiting. We're still waiting until that is fulfilled. There's great stress on the word until. We've got to be patient. We've got to wait for him to come. And then this, this is a shortened list. But if you go to First Corinthians chapter 15, you'll see there the same passage of Scripture Maybe it's got another emphasis. First Corinthians chapter fifteen and verse twenty-five. The context is this: the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrection from the dead, and the rule of Christ. And the millennium then is mentioned, verse twenty-four, in this way: Then cometh the end, when He shall deliver up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when He shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for He must reign until he hath put all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. So the emphasis there, it mentions the until again, but it's the word enemies, isn't it? And it's all enemies, even death, the last enemy, shall be put under his feet. Point being, that every word and phrase and you could find footstool later on. Every word and phrase in that one sentence is used in the New Testament to make a particular point. Yeah, it's an amazing example of every word of Scripture. is powerful, isn't it? It may not always um, be exactly relevant in every circumstance. All the words are true, but in one place, they may be making a point, my Lord. And they, well, how is that possible? Because every word, this isn't David working out how to say something. That God gave him an idea and he's put it down in his own words. It can't be. It can't be David's thoughts. How could David know to say the right words? He couldn't possibly know those things. It's not trying to guess what David knew. They'll say, well, what did David mean by that verse? That's what it means, which is the, I would suggest, a mistake we sometimes make. What it is, is what did David through the Spirit mean by those words? In other words, what did God intend us to hear? when we read that. And it's clear that God intended us to hear this as a unique promise to the Lord Jesus Christ, son of David and son of God, to be the Melchizedek priest, ultimately to ascend into the right hand of the majesty in the heavens, awaiting his return, when he will bring all enemies, including death, under his power. That's what we were intended to hear. Okay, that, do you understand that, that point now? Presumably, every verse of the Bible could be dealt with in that way if only we had the wisdom to see it. That's why when we come to the New Testament, we're trying to find these connections to teach us what you know, what we can uh, understand, not using our imagination, not using our guesswork, but saying, oh, look, that's what it says. And, and the, the scripture is opening up for us its own interpretation. i just put these in because it's not just that word. If you look at Psalm 110, verse 4, Yahweh hath sworn and will not repent, thou art a priest forever. Notice how those phrases keep coming up in the following text. Each word is being picked up. The word uh, forever in this passage, but in this passage, uh, the other passages where the word sworn is picked up, uh, and so on. Melchizedek is picked up, priest is picked up, each, each word is picked up and opened up and developed. That's what the book of Hebrews is doing. It's interpreting the words of Old Testament promises. Uh, what I want to do is leave you with a challenge, then the workshop picks up after a little break now. Uh, you'll be able to, to think about this and maybe challenge me on some of the things I've said. question here is: Were the writers of Scripture also authors? It's quite a clear way of putting the issue. Now, this writer, William Lane Craig, I just put this quote down because it, it puts it very clearly. Nothing to do with, you know, who he is in particular, but he's put it very clearly. He draws attention to the fact that it was a guy called Baruch Spinoza, in 1670, who started a line of thought which has developed to become what's called higher criticism, uh, or humanist thought, where it was um, believed that the human writers were not mere secretaries, but genuine authors, whose humanity and distinctive peculiarities are reflected in their composition. Okay, so some of the questions that we raised earlier on are grasping at that concept. You know, I stressed it wasn't Isaiah, but surely Isaiah's personality is coming through in his writings. It's a very different style from Jeremiah, different again from Hosea, different again from Daniel. Isn't that a reflection of those people's what? Personality? Character? Culture? How do we explain that? Well, that Spinoza was a I wasn't. I think he was quite an atheist, but he was almost an atheist, and he started off, uh, you know, the the critical movement of of Bible study. This is this is in house. This is the sort of thing you will read, and may indeed have said. My question is, do you agree with these sort of comments, uh, and if you do? How does that fit with inspiration? And if you don't, how would you answer it? In other words, the character of Luke comes out in the selection of material in the gospel record of Luke. And we can see something of his modesty, um, of his background in nautical matters, and so on. How, How can we say that? Well, because... He records in the Acts of the Apostles details of nautical matters. And that reflects his familiarity with nautical matters because implication, he couldn't have put it in if he wasn't. And because he was, he decided to put it in. So the nautical matters of Acts chapter 27 are a reflection of who Luke was. Do you agree with that? Or... We feel in his gospel his intense concern for fallen humanity. In other words, the parable of the good Samaritan, the parable of the lost sheep, and the parable of the prodigal son are put into the record in this collection of things Jesus did because the writer was particularly inclined to appreciate those things, that he put in a lot of aspects of womankind in the that because he has a particular um, sensitivity towards that. Uh, now that, that that was almost a normal way in the Brotherhood of speaking about Luke's gospel. Certainly, I mean, I'm not making that up. That, that's not, you know, um, a journal uh, that of no consequence. That's a that's the mainstream journal. So Put it another way, do you agree that the fourth evangelist has his own very distinctive style, which colours not only his own meditations and comments, but the sayings of Jesus and John the Baptist? Do you agree with that? That's not a Christaven writing, by the way. That's, I think, it's F. F. Bruce. Do you agree with that? I don't. <laughs> All right. But how different is that from that? I I can't see a huge difference, to be honest. So, what I would ask is, well this, this is what Brother John Carter sort of sums it up as. What shall be said then about the individuality of the writers? The fact is God so used the writer that in the resulting prophecy, the personality of the writer is not obliterated. And yet, the words are claimed to be by God as his own. If pressed, how is is this done. It's a miracle. And that's the conflict that the brother does live with since the days of Robert Roberts. The Bible's the word of God. Clearly, it says so. Ah, but it includes the personality of the writers. How, how come? It's a miracle. <laughs> but that contradiction, I believe, is an impediment to studying the scripture. Because the problem then is that when we study the gospel record of Luke as the word of God, we don't actually. We study it as the words of Luke. We draw our conclusion about who Luke was, how he thought, what he liked, what his personality was. Huh? Or Mark, or Matthew, or Isaiah. Right. Huh? And then, now where are we going? You say, hang on now, it's the word of God. What are we supposed to understand? Is it given us to understand Matthew or Mark or Luke's personality? Or is it given us to understand the Lord Jesus Christ from a particular angle? Surely the parable of the prodigal son isn't in Luke just because Luke thought you liked that one. Surely it's there because this is an important aspect of whatever Luke has been called upon to present. Surely we're to read the parable of the prodigal son not to understand the sensitivity of Luke, but to understand the sensitivity of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, what I'm saying, that, that you could end up going down a path which ends up saying, "No, you know, the Apostle Paul had a wonderful mind. And it's a cul-de-sac, it's a dead end. Of course, you had a wonderful mind. You wrote by the power of the Holy Spirit. Right. So what does the Holy Spirit want us to understand? To marvel at the apostle's mind? Or to marvel at the mind of Christ? It just it's a, it's, it's a direction of, of travel here. But Brother Carter insists that the power of God so operated that while the message was in the style and idiom of David, it, yes, it still expressed God's word. Inspiration is not dictation. This is a mantra in the Brotherhood's literature. Inspiration is not dictation. There's something insulting to say that they've wrote by dictation. Well, I would say, what's the problem with that? What's the problem with them writing down every word? What's that called in the Bible? Writing down every word exactly as you're told. What sort of occupation was that? It's a scribe. You wouldn't go up to a scribe and say, you know, I hope you're not insulted, but I want you to write down this word for word, what I say. It's a legal document. I don't want you to use your interpretation or your flair. I want you to write it down exactly as I say. That's hardly demeaning, is it? Uh, So once again, we come up with this style of the individual writers. Why does it matter? Why does it matter? These are quotations from a different magazine. Published four years ago. Right? In the Brotherhood. Now you see how it starts off. The Bible does claim to be inspired in the sense that holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, but they were still human and spoke as men using human language, influenced by human culture, even though they were motivated by God to convey what was in his mind as far as they understood it. You see where that's going? Right? Now, where do you stop on that slippery path? Right? Uh, let's back up a bit. Okay. The breadth and the limits of biblical inspiration Are illustrated in the Psalms. The Psalms are a collection of true ideas brought face to face with untrue ones. So when you read a Psalm, how would you know which was the true and which was the untrue? That's why I'm going on about this subject, that's why it's so important. So one writer says, I did. I encounter in the Bible rather clear evidence that his authors were human. Right? God uses human witnesses to get his message to us. It turns out God was also willing to allow these human witnesses to make mistakes of fact and mistakes of understanding in order to get his message to us through them. Now, how on earth would you know which was a mistake and which was true? You'd have to use modern understanding. You'd have to use modern science. You'd have to use modern philosophy to discern which was true and which was false. You wouldn't be using the word of God itself. This is why I am, you know, trying to draw attention to us to think this through. Now, something that you said earlier on, I think, is the answer when we get round to it. But I need to take you along this path of 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 working through that. So what I would uh, like to do is stop at this point and then the workshop would be for you to get together in groups maybe, I don't know, four or four or something like that to a table and just, you know, see if, I, are there different styles? Are there different um, personalities coming through the scripture, particularly the Psalms? Do you see? you know, uh, the Psalms as being the outpouring of David's heart. Um, is that what the Psalms are, for example? Um, and how, how would you, how, just to back, how would you answer this sort of... cop? Now, you know, if there's not a lot of discussion, we'll straight into discussion of some of the passages that would be relevant. So one of the things would be, what passages of Scripture speak about how inspiration works? I've given you... Second Timothy chapter 3, it's an obvious one, but there are other passages which talk about how prophets came to speak or write the words they have and what do those passages add up to when we look at them together.